You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. I look at it personally as a, well, listen, these are the rules. It's your right not to get vaccinated. That's absolutely fine. Go right ahead, fill your boots. However, your actions have consequences and reactions. The consequence to not getting vaccinated means you can't cross back into Canada without going into whatever. So take, take your fill. Do I agree with it 100% on the federal government side? No, because I don't think we're really a point of transmission. Mm-hmm. However, you know, these people that are out there protesting truckers, you know, oh, great, we're all behind you, truckers. They're the same people tomorrow. They're going to want to pay 10 cents to move freight across the country. And then they're going to wonder why all these guys have to work as hard as we do just to make a buck because nobody wants to pay for anything. So if they really want to support truckers, hey, pay the fair share for your freight. That's that, that's what I would come out and say. But nobody wants to pay. So the same person that's out there saying, go truckers, be like, what do you mean it's going to cost me $100 to, to move this from point A to point B or $100, whatever it is. I want to pay $25 to do it. Why can't you do it for 25 bucks? Hey, good evening and welcome to the show. This is Yona Bud here on Road to Recovery. I appreciate you joining us. We know you have other options. And we're glad that you choose us this evening. I'm in the studio with Natasha and Sophia, and uh, glad to have you with us. The open board here for tonight. How do you feel about the protests? Are you for or against what's going on in Ottawa right now? 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. Truckers and supporter uh, protesters are obviously in Ottawa right now, and they're gathered um, to try to bring some light to... uh, the restrictions and the, con- the concerns that many citizens apparently have uh, with respect to the government's choices on the things we can and cannot do. Um, you know, protesters are gathering all the way all along, many of whom are not connected uh, with the industry. Um, and I'll give you an example here. Mike Fabinski is a truck driver from Barrie. Uh, he said the vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers means he won't be able to work because he does cross-border routes. I won't be, I won't, you want to be vaccinated, go ahead. He says it's your choice. I don't want to be. That's my choice. Savinsky said that he's been a trucker for 20 years and now he's not been able to travel to the U.S. since the federal mandate came in. Well, he gets to make a choice too, right? Like, you know, I have a, you know, I have a certain job. I have certain restrictions. I have certain obligations. I work in, um, we, we operate uh, mental health and addiction treatment facilities with their, their, their uh, residency facilities. So, you know, I have obligations. I can't go to work. Unless I'm vaccinated, it's just the way it is. I can't show up to to see patients and staff uh, in an environment. So, you know, whether a trucker is uh, safe to come across the border, some people say that, you know, perhaps, you know, they're not meeting anybody, they're not seeing anybody. But, you know, let me ask you something. If you heard this guy that was, uh, that we just shared the tape, the the recording, the tape, you can tell how old I am, right? We just shared the recording here. you know, where are we? Like, why aren't you outside your local Sobeys or Metro or President's Choice or wherever you do your shopping, right? Because we should be out there waving on the guys and, and gals that are in the business that are delivering the stuff to our shelves. We should be celebrating and supporting the ones that are working 24 hours a day, six, maybe seven days a week, sleeping in their truck in between, many of whom can't get home. There's thousands of truckers in, in Ottawa right now and many along the way that have, you know, decided to join the protest and all for it. I, you know, I'm all for standing up to government, but there's a cost here. There's nothing on the shelves. We're running out of, out, out of things. You know, my, my, local sh- my, my, my local shopping list is dwindling. Many things are coming back. Don't have, don't have, don't have. 
I don't want to support a whole bunch of truckers in Ottawa protesting until things change because things aren't going to change so fast. What I want to do is I want to support the people that are working, those that are actually doing the job so that you and I have some, some groceries tonight and have medicine in our medicine cabinet delivered to our local pharmacies and so on, and gas delivered to the gas stations. Can you imagine if truckers stopped delivering petroleum, stopped delivering fuel? Within a matter of days, we'd be out of fuel in, G- in the GTA. Days. So it's a function of paying attention to those that do and those that don't. And listen, I'm not suggesting that if anybody want, doesn't want to get vaccinated, they should get vaccinated. What I'm suggesting is I don't think we should have a national protest and support in honor of people that are bucking the system and don't want to do what everyone else is doing to try to get by. And as, as a result of that, tying up streets and highways and byways, the city of Toronto was a mess the other day when they were here. I don't want him here. I don't need him here. I get it. Okay, I don't want to wear a mask any more than you do. I want to be able to go to my local restaurant like anyone else. I want to make a decision if I should go to my gym or not. I want to make those decisions. I don't want the decisions made for me. Okay, I'm with you. I got it. But I'm not going to support a whole bunch of people who stick their nose up and say, okay, we're not doing this and we refuse to travel, we refuse to drive, we refuse to deliver. It's a bunch of crap. The Canadian Trucking Alliance, which, which Prime Minister touted on Monday, is the biggest trucker association in the country. They spoke out against the convoy. These, these folks are not representative. Ladies and gentlemen, my dear friends, you know I love you. I would not steer you wrong. They're not representative of the Canadian Trucking Association or the Canadian trucking industry. There's many, many tens of thousands of truckers who are out there working right now who have been vaccinated, maybe, you know, maybe not wanting to, but they did it anyway. Listen, I'm not thrilled about having three vaccines in my arm of something I don't know, but you know what? I'm going to roll the dice and go with it. I'm going to make a decision that I'm probably going to be healthier. I'm probably going to be better off if, God forbid, I get this disease, this virus. I believe I'm going to be better being immunized. So what we're calling for are these basic lockdowns and restrictions to be lifted across the world. That's what Mark Smith said. He, that's what he told Global, uh, our, our partners at Global News from Drumbo, Ontario. There's a freedom movement actually across the world right now, he says. We're all getting together to just get our lives back. But what does that mean, get your life back? You got your life back. You got everything going for you. All you got to do is stick a needle in your arm, man, and you go back to work. Like, I don't get it. 416-870-6400. Give me a call how you feel about it. You know, this is, it's, it's such a controversial subject that if we're going to be on a road to recovery, let, let's put our energy where it belongs. Listen, I get that everyone's frustrated. I get that everyone wants to be involved and have their hand up and have their sign read and say that I was part of the protest. There's other ways to do it. Get a hold of your MPs, get a local a hold of your local politicians, gather a bunch of 30 or 40 or 50 mothers and, and, and family members from around the neighborhood and go down to, to, to the parliament buildings and go to city hall and, you know, write letters to Ottawa, show up to Ottawa, maybe if that's what you want to do, but in a way that makes sense. Crippling the uh, transportation industry by shutting the roads down, by taking thousands of truckers off the road, and to raise millions and millions of dollars to support these people. Why aren't we raising millions of dollars to support the ones that are working? Why don't we give them a little extra bump and say, thank you very much. Here's a bonus for delivering my fruits and vegetables and making sure that there's milk on the shelves. It, you know, it, it's, there's a point at which freedom is, is a great thing, and I'm, and I'm all for it. But there's a point at which we have to, we have to make honest decisions about our lives. And just because there's a group of people that don't want to do what the mandated 
you know, government policy is to do, doesn't mean you shut everything down and that we as a, we as a, as a country go out of our way to, listen, 58,000 of us donated over $6 million to this organization, this GoFundMe uh, uh, page campaign for the trucker convoy, pay for their gas and their food and their, their accommodations. And bullshit. Who's paying for my gas, my food, my accommodations? Nobody. If I don't go to work, my patients get sicker. Maybe they die, God forbid. No one's putting a, pay, a, a, fund, a funding program together for me so I don't have to go to work. Why are they putting together a funding program for, for truckers so they don't have to go to work? They, listen, there's tons of loads available in Canada right now. There's tons of loads, meaning there are, there are trailers and loads, of, uh, loads to be filled into trailers waiting, desperately waiting on, on docks in, in warehouses and in shipping areas across the country. And they're waiting for truckers. The truckers, many of whom are in Ottawa, they're waiting for them to come back to work. So all they got to do is get jabbed. And I'll tell you, if you're driving across Canada, you don't really have to necessarily um, get a jab in your arm. Anyway, that's how I feel. When we come back, we're going to talk about some important stuff as it relates to kids and violence and guns and gangs. We've got some amazing experts to join us. So I appreciate you joining me this evening. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Recovery, I'm Yona Bud, your host this evening. I appreciate you joining us, and um, we just love having you here. We know that you've got other choices, and we're glad that you choose us. You know, there, this week there's a 13-year-old boy that was, uh, last week I believe, a 13-year-old boy um, was involved in shooting a 15-year-old and killing him. Um, several guns were found. Um, 13-year-old, had been, he's been charged with fatally shooting this 15-year-old uh, allegedly after allegedly days before stealing narcotics from a pharmacy at gunpoint. Um, that shouldn't be shocking. Anyway, wake-up call to the city facing the epidemic. Uh, ja, um, ja Rain Taylor was 14 when he was first given a gun uh, by a 44-year-old man. Now, Taylor is 28. He's a former gang member who works with Toronto uh, youth who are involved in criminal activity. Uh, he'd like, he was, he would see the older guys in the neighborhood counting money, he said, explaining how he came to decide that that's what he wanted. You won't, if you won't respect me, <clears throat> excuse me, you will learn to fear me, he would say. He was a fearless kid, he said, and be, and had to be, and needed to be taken seriously. He started breaking into cars and accumulating his own money until he was given a gun. It was like being groomed by a predator, he would say. Older gang members took advantage of his youth, his recklessness. And the fact that as a minor, he'd face less harsh consequences under the youth criminal justice system. Taylor says the same thing he's experienced is happening today, adding that people trying to fight young violence are ringing alarms that both the predators and the victims are just seem to be getting younger. We call it eating our young. My friend Marcel Wilson, a former gangland leader, a gang leader, excuse me, who also works with youth in Toronto, founded the group, one by, nonprofit group, One by One Movement. He said... It would have been unusual in the 20, early 20s for a 13-year-old to have a gun. Uh, having a gun as a youth was a very powerful thing because of how, it, how rare it was. It gave you a reputation really quick, he said. Now it's part of the norm, he said. It's not shocking that it should, uh, as it should be. Marcel Wilson asked a group of 16s he works with, age 12 to 17, some of whom were recently released from custody and youth detention, about their experience, and they said they could obtain a gun in hours if they wanted to, and that they knew people who had been shot, and some had actually shot them, had been shot themselves. A lot depends on where you live, the teens would say. Wilson says that he sees the influence of social media clout, changing, clout chasing and glamorization of gun violence in local rap scenes as one of the reasons 
that this all comes together. Uh, black Toronto neighborhoods see more homicides but less support for victims. Uh, black people are disproportionately impacted by homicides in the neighborhood. This report, led by the University of Toronto Associate Professor Tanya Sharp, looks into how predominantly African, Caribbean, and black neighborhoods are at increased risk and calls for both the collection of more race-based data and more research that amplifies the voices and experience of black survivors of homicide victims. I'm fortunate to have both of these people join me this evening. I have Tanya Sharp and I have Marcel Wilson. Good evening to both of you. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Hey, Marcel, how you doing, brother? It's been a while. I'm great, brother. How are you? I'm good. Thank you both for joining us. Um, you know, Marcel will tell you, uh, Tanya, that um, it's okay to call you Tanya? Yeah? Yeah, fine. Okay, perfect. Um, Marcel will tell you that we've been talking about this for years. I'm sure you have as well, both uh, himself, myself, uh, Louis Marsh. So, you know, we're certainly on this show and any other show I've ever had, this has been a, a, a predominant topic for us uh, for years already. Um, I'm going to start off with Tanya, uh, if that's okay. Uh, by the way, Tanya Sharp's the assistant professor at the University of Toronto and uh, involved in uh, helping uh, neighborhoods. And, and Marcel, as you know, is the founder of the One by One movement, who's actually in the streets talking to people, working with kids, and uh, supporting them as mentors. Uh, Tanya, this is like this is getting. Um, God, you know, it always seems to be that my opening comment is always the same, and it's getting. A little much. It seems to be that we're having this discussion. They're getting younger, more frequent, more brazen. Um, is this really just a black thing? Do you think? <laughs> wow, you 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 started there. Um, so <laughs> I got I got limited time. I, I, you started there. Um, so when I get asked this question, um, and I have quite often, and after two decades of doing this work, I think. Um, when we go there, it's, it's really a misdirection and a, and a verbal slide of hand, I think, to skirt the issues, which is why uh, the Center for Research and Innovation for Black Survivors of Homicide Victims, the CRIB, the center that I founded, really just released this report to really talk about the social determinants of homicide, the root causes of homicide, um, really asking us to look at the fact that African Caribbean Black folk get uh, and receive low pay wages compared to other populations, unequal educational opportunities, insufficient housing, uh, they're surveilled, mass incarceration. And so when you think about those perpetual structural inequities that are inherently violent, we really need to start looking at those contributing factors to the increase that we're seeing in homicide. Um, I think that's, that's, that's where we, we really need to go. Um, and to the sort of black-on-black -black crime question that I'm often getting, you know, crimes are carried out due to proximity. And so if you have white individuals living in a predominantly white neighborhood, uh, there's a higher likelihood that they will uh, enact crimes against one, one another. But you never hear white-on-white -white crime. And so I, I do think it's a sleight of hand, and I'd like to focus on, again, the structural inequities that are contributing to, to this pandemic of grief that African-Caribbean Black people are experiencing. 
Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and again, don't, don't misunderstand my question. As far as I'm concerned, it, it's, it's a systemic issue, not just in particular neighborhoods, mm-hmm. but I think with, I think with youth in general. Um, Marcel, you know, um, you and, you and I have talked about this before. In this particular case, with this particular kid, it's interesting because the kid that he killed, the kid that was shot, uh, and, uh, later, uh, pa- you know, passed away, um, he was actually not from that neighborhood. He actually lived with his grandma somewhere else. Uh, great kid, doing well, all kinds of good supports. Uh, visited, I guess, his mom maybe in that neighborhood, from what I read, and in some way, shape, or form, got you know got into an altercation with this guy. But it, you know, you and I have talked about it. It's no longer just uh, kids and kids and youth from uh, quote unquote difficult neighborhoods, or to Tanya's point, uh, uh, you know, areas of uh, where people are of color. Uh, we're seeing you know Caucasian kids from middle class neighborhoods starting to play this ki- this game as well. Um, how do we intervene there? I mean, you know, we can talk about you know more more social hubs and more youth hubs, which I'm all on side for, and I, I'm totally on Tanya's side as it relates to you know focus on neighborhoods where where it's not uh, socially um, you know socially uh, um, evened out if you will it, it doesn't seem to be an equal an equal play against against all all you know all uh, lines but <clears throat> we're seeing you're seeing um, kids that aren't coming from you know quote unquote difficult neighborhoods acting out well, with gun violence where are we going right. with that well yeah to, to to touch on Tanya's point and both of your guys points um, this is definitely not a black problem in Canada. This is a Canadian problem. This is an all of us problem. I've been saying that for a while. Um, We're seeing this type of violence, uh, this type of attitude kind of migrate now uh, across the city um, where, where, you know, we're seeing, seeing shootings in broad daylight. We're seeing, seeing shootings in mall malls. We're seeing shootings uh, of people of all different ages and races sort of happening. But again, uh, Tana kind of touched on it. The only way to really address it is to deal with the root cause issues. You know, prevention is cheaper than an intervention. We have to start dealing with the issues that lead kids to want to even commit an act of violence. Mm-hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. you know, we're starting with parenting. We're starting with ed- right. the education system. We're, we're, right. You know, it kind of has to come from the top down. Everyone thinks that we have to rebuild communities and that the, community, the attitudes in the communities have to change. But when you're under constant pressure and you're under, you know, you're already sort of, for a lack of better terms, at the bottom of the barrel, constantly trying to fight your way up. And you have all these, all of these issues that kind of come at you from every angle. You know, we need people from the top to really understand that we need to deal with the root cause issues. And once we do that, we'll start seeing a decline in the violence, I think. Yeah. yeah. Our, our, friend, our friend Louis March would say that it's not about the roots, it's about the seeds and we need right. to plant them sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me read you. Let me read you something here. For a lot, this goes on to uh, to the, the the same um, same article that Marcel was uh, recently quoted on uh, in. Excuse me. For a lot of them, they aren't even necessarily violent themselves. They are victims of their environment. Wilson says. Uh, but once they there's access to a firearm, it can escalate. They get curious. They want to make money. Then unfortunately, ends up using firearms to get the things that they want. Wilson says that he sees the influence of social media, clout chasing, and the glamorization of gun violence um, as part of the local rap scene as an indicator as well. You know, Tanya, you're, you're, you're um, you know, you're a, a, an educated woman. You're, you're, uh, you know, involved in this in this type of, of work. You're talking to communities and people and doing studies and involved in activities that you know look into this kind of stuff. You know, is it is it ju- is it about um, 
you know, you come out of the faculty of social work. I mean, it, it, you know, from a therapeutic perspective, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 as a therapist myself, I'm not quite sure how you address a 13-year-old um, who not only will, you know, it's one thing to carry it to be the big shot, as Marcel was alluding to, you know, kind of gives you mm-hmm. grid, but to actually pull that trigger and take a life, man, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've worked with some pretty tough kids. I, I just, it's a, yeah. there's a different kind of kid that's got to think like that. Do you want to yeah. get up on a minute left here no. before we go to break? Uh, what do you think on that? Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you so much for the question. So I think that what we really need to start uh, asking is not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. And as a clinician, we often talk about coming at it from a trauma-informed lens. Um, what we, uh, basically, what we're often seeing is youth are both the victim and perpetrator. But we're not unpacking that, right? We're not unpacking those trauma histories that have gone unchecked, unnoticed, unacknowledged, and, and quite honestly, not linked to proper resources to be able to deal with it. So those wounds are left to fester, Right. And, ha- and that anger and that rage has to go somewhere. And so I think a lot of times we're not ans- asking the right question in terms of not what's wrong with that kid, but what, what, what happened to you. Right. And unpacking that. I'm with uh, I'm with Tanya Sharp, associate professor, professor, University of Toronto and Marcel Wilson, a good friend, founder of One by One Movement. We're going to take a break here and come back in a couple of minutes. You guys are going to hang on and join me. OK, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Tanya and Marcel, you can hang on to the next segment. Absolutely. Okay, yes. Okay, perfect. Let's right here. Going. Okay, we'll see you the, as soon as we get back from commercial. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me this evening. I'm with Tanya Sharp, Associate Professor, University of Toronto, and uh, a friend, uh, Marcel Wilson. Well, I guess Tanya's a friend now, too. I've broken the ice. Marcel Wilson, uh, founder of One by One Movement. Uh, the report, uh, Tanya's, uh, we're ta- go on to read a little bit here. The report led by U of T Associate Professor Tanya Sharp looks into the, how predominantly African-Indian and black neighborhoods are increased risk and calls for both the collection of more race-based data and more research that amplifies the voices and experience of black survivors and homicide victims. The report was released this month by the University of Toronto. Uh, we need to talk about the ripple effect of homicide violence in black communities throughout the diaspora that has been under-researched and under-noticed. As we're sitting here in between break, there's been a new shooting at uh, Jane and Finch. Um, it seems to be seems to be daily news. I'm going to go back to Tanya here for a minute. Um, from a from a I guess from a community support perspective, um, you know it, it it must be very frustrating to try to talk. You know I'll, I'll get to Marcel here in a minute. Um, it must be very frustrating to have conversations with families and community leaders where we know that you know the city, the province, the the, the federal government are, you know, have eyes on this problem, the, the, the youth gang vi- violence problem, the gun violence problem in our country. Uh, but um, I think this is, um, this is um, what we need to look at here is, you know, what do we need to do? Like, for example, right now there's trucks in, in Ottawa that are, um, <clears throat> that are um, um, you know, there, there's trucks in Ottawa that are trying to protest mandates and all kinds of things. I've, I've had this conversation with Marcel and Louis, bef- Louis before many times. You know, why aren't we, why aren't we as, a, as a community, and I'm including myself, why aren't we as a community, and I'd be, at the, you know, be glad to be part of it, uh, why aren't we 
you know, putting our own protests together and doing our own almost Black Lives Matter kind of thing. And in fact, people like Black Lives Matter. Why aren't, why aren't we kicking up a bigger storm? Why is it, you know, mm-hmm. month after month, Marcel and Louis and myself and people, excellent people like you mm-hmm. having these conversations, we're not moving the needle. What do we got to do? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And, and, I, and I do think, number one, you've pointed out, if we just listen to the community, communities will always tell you what it is that they need. Um, I think there's a fundamental disconnect between policy and the, the you know, um, delving out of proper resources, both um, to Marcel's point on the prevention and intervention side. So we have to deal with the, the you know, disproportionate homicides that have occurred and the tremendous amount of grief that that has caused um, um, this, you know, African Caribbean and Black communities, as well as create programming and pro, um, programs that have been and support programs that have been created by community members already that include uh, summer youth employment program opportunities, that include um, educational uh, preparation opportunities, um, as well as dealing with trauma, grief, and loss. Um, and so I think that those things are, are most paramount. But I also think Fundamentally, you know, I am simply amplifying the voices of the community. Folks have already been saying this for years, but in the absence of race-based data collection, people will create a narrative. And I think that's part of the problem, which is why we're trying to sort of match what the community is saying with data so that everyone else can get involved and see themselves as part of a solution versus just a problem over in a certain neighborhood. Uh, Marcel, um, according to the report, an average of 232 murders occurred in the province yearly with racialized Ontarians accounting for 75% of the victims, 44% of whom identified as African, Caribbean, or black. You, you know, you work, you work, you work in the neighborhoods, you work in the communities that are most affected, uh, by this. Um, are, are the youth that you talk, that you talk to, do, they, are they, do they see themselves as rationalized and radicalized as, or excuse me, ration, racialized um, in terms of the approach or do they just see themselves in a, in a bad spot and they don't see the colors behind it? Well, they, they, it's, they definitely understand that they're racialized. Um, the, you know, there's so many broken bits of the system that you can't help but to see, you know, when, it, when you have a broken education system that, is particular to a specific area code. That's not necessarily a a black or, or culture thing, but they're 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 aware of it um, when they when they are going through the system. If if you know that happens, they definitely understand that they're being treated differently uh, than than their counterparts. Um, so so of course they're aware, and and that in itself breeds you know even through my own experiences of, as a former gang member, I understood those things from very young, which mm-hmm. in turn bred anger and and confusion and frustration, and, and and again you know growing up in a community where things are being gentrified around me, and I'm seeing you know all these beautiful condos kind of go up around my neighborhood that I yeah. feel I can't access because I'm not yeah. being taught how to you know yeah. acquire those things. They definitely understand those things, brother. 
So in the communities, in a lot of the communities uh, lately, recently, in the last five, six years, there's been an immigration of some um, Eastern Bloc families. I've met several. You know a few, in, I'm sure, in your neighborhoods. You know, I guess the question is, if, if, if the buildings at, uh, let's just take it as an example, no, no slight on any particular neighborhood, but let's say the buildings that I'm mostly familiar with, like the Falstaff and, and Jane Street buildings, if they were filled with um, underprivileged, underserviced, underfinanced, under opportunity provided white people or you know caucasian or lighter skinned people from a different country do you think things would be different or is this really about and, and this may be a, a question for tanya is this maybe about the economic divide and the social divide and and the or is it a, is it a, a really a skin color issue i think the economic the educational divide the low pay pay wages divide yeah, the incarceration yeah. divide the surveillance yeah. divide is at sits at the root of anti-black racism. Racism. Period. Full stop. So and the white so, kids. So know, the white kids. So hang on. So the white kids or the the, the light-skinned kids in those neighborhoods, the Latino community from the Russian communities, Latino communities, uh, you know, other other parts of the world, um, Asian communities. They're they're not targeted the same way as the kids of of darker skin color in the same neighborhoods. If I may. Yeah, Marcel. Go ahead. Please, Marcel. Please. Yeah, if I may. Um, I, I work in areas such as, you know, Regent Park or Alexandra Park. And, and you know, you see a, a, quite a diverse population in these places. And then if you look at, you know, some of the victims, of, you know, of these crimes, obviously we're, we're seeing a lot of different races that are involved in this. It affects everyone. So it is definitely, you know, there's a component of social classism that that, that is probably the main route. But you can't take away the fact that, race plays a big role in, in all the root cause risk factors, right? So if we're going to, we can't just spe- specify one, we have to deal with all of them. So definitely so- social classism, I would say is, is, is the root is one of the main roots, but, but, but race plays a huge role. You know, I'll tell you something I see. And I know that both of you, if we were together, we would say the same thing and you would hold my hand while I said it. I see kids as kids. I don't see them as a color. Uh, I see moms as moms and grannies as grannies and aunties as aunties and, de- and fathers as fathers. Um, we need to, as a community, uh, start doing that. We need to start paying attention that these are just children. They come from families. It doesn't matter where those families come from or what shade of whatever they're, they may be. We're killing kids. Kids are killing kids. The system is killing kids. We're not providing the support for those kids and their families. We're just doing a horrible job. And thankfully, we have people like Tanya Sharp to continue. And by the way, you're going to, Tanya did such a good job. You're on our list now as a regular cast member. So congratulations. Oh, it comes, comes with no money, but a little bit of, a little bit of uh, clout. Um, and uh, Marcel, Marcel, as always, brother, you stay safe out there. We're going to have you guys come back and keep coming back and keep coming back until something changes, until something happens. So I uh, love you guys and uh, appreciate the hard that. work you do. Um, when we come back from break, uh, I'm going to lighten it up a little bit, talk to my friend Sean Shapiro. He's a police constable with Toronto Traffic Services, and he's doing something really cool. So let's talk about that. But don't forget, we're killing our kids, man. we got to pay attention and pay attention to their families and where this all comes from and yeah, this we're doing a terrible job as a community. Colors aside, be right back here. Yona Bud, six forty, Toronto. Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host Yona Bud, only on six forty, Toronto. Well, you've been out on the roads at all lately. You're talking about all these uh, traffic cops that are out there directing traffic, making sure that 
you don't get yourself hurt. And when you get into an accident, you know, if you, it's that kind of accident where cops actually have to show up, they actually show up. And these are the traffic cops. These are the people that are out there dealing with um, road traffic and uh, all the good, the bad, and the ugly that comes with that. Uh, months ago, I, 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 we found a, an expert on, uh, on um, traffic law, uh, and uh, he joined us. And uh, we've continued to be friends. Um, his name is Sean Shapiro. He's a police constable uh, in Toronto here. Um, but we, um, we became friends because I started following him on his live stream chats and videos. And uh, we have him with us here tonight because he does stay awake late. And uh, other than shoveling snow, he's probably not too busy because he does his work in the morning. Sean, welcome to the show. And I didn't realize that you're really underneath the uniform, that beautiful smile. You're a broadcaster. I, I, I Apparently, I'm doing a lot of things, including broadcasting. We're having a great time on social media. And uh, it's, it's fantastic. From where we were uh, a year ago to now, it's, it, you wouldn't believe it. Would you ever thought such? I mean, how long have you been on the job, brother? I've been with the service for 21 years. I started as a as an auxiliary, as a volunteer, became a court officer, and then transitioned to police constable. And uh, never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd be a face on social media and media, you know, speaking about the, the job and safety. So is this something that you kind of suggested was going to, uh, that something you were interested in doing? Or kind of how did this come about? How did we get the Ask PC Sean Shapiro uh, segments out there? Did the, the service come to you and say, hey, great smile, great, uh, great voice, <laughs> and let's get you? Or did you kind of kind of set this up at some level? It, it, to say that it happened by accident is it couldn't be truer. It happened because I was involved in a motorcycle collision as a motor squad officer. I was on my motorcycle heading back to the station and someone pulled out of a parking lot of a gas station and we met in the middle and had a, had a collision. So I was, I was out of the game and I'm still out of the game. I can't go on the road. I'm, I'm injured. I have a disability. Uh, at least that's the classification because I am not able to uh, currently for, perform my function uh, on the road. I can't get in a police car and take off and do my thing. Uh, so I was accommodated. I was put into another position so I could still do useful work. And then this sort of happened by accident. I was a graphic artist, a photographer. Uh, I, I started doing all the social media uh, design and, and production. And then one day I, I just started doing some video segments. And those video segments ended up going on uh, onto Twitter. And, uh, and then we said, well, there's an investigation about some kids that were skateboarding off the Gardner Expressway. I don't know if you remember hearing that story. Sure I do. Yeah. Well, that was on TikTok. So I had to create a TikTok account. Now, before that day, TikTok was about you know, kids doing dances and themes yeah. and jokes, and it wasn't yeah. something for the police to get involved in, yeah. but things changed and we put up content and it took off. And you know, that was the start of something amazing. And then one day I said, Hey, what's this button that says go live. And now I go live every day. And uh, we, we speak to, <laughs> to sometimes 2,500 people in a room, 25,000 people over an hour asking their questions, just, uh, you know, want to know what's going on. And we, and we answer their questions live. Amazing. Amazing. I, 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 and, you know, surprisingly, not surprisingly, but you, you are so good at it. Um, so let's, you know, we're talking about, you know, one day we had 38 views, one day you had 21 views, one day you had 41 views. Um, well, you know, your view, you're, 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 some, come, you come in from LinkedIn. Yeah, maybe whatever, YouTube, whatever, it doesn't matter, YouTube. 2.1, <laughs> uh, 2.1 thousand, 1,000 and a half, 1,003. Like, you got all, you got some serious traction here, brother. I don't think, I don't think I'm getting that many listeners on my show. Um, well, so I'm, I'm hoping maybe you'll have me on someday to, you know, I would love, well, I, I'd love to bring you on to the show. Uh, the, the, but here's the deal. Uh, what you're seeing, so I, I simulcast. So when I go online and, and I'm, and the, the view that you're seeing when you're on LinkedIn or YouTube is, going out on on twitter 
uh, Twitch, LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, multiple Facebook accounts. It goes on to the ones for Sean Shapiro, goes on the ones for the service. But our biggest audience is on TikTok. We have 554,000 followers on TikTok. Wow. We are the number one educational police channel in North America. And uh, wow. we have people from all over the world. People jump in and say, hey, I'm from Australia, from Ireland. I, I had some people from Germany jumping in. It's it's really amazing. And and that's our live segment. And the people who are consuming our, our canned or, or, or uh, pre-taped content, uh, it, we have videos. That, one video about tint, somebody lost their mind. They didn't like it. 6.6 yeah. 6 yeah. million views on one video. It's 27 <laughs> seconds long. That's amazing. I mean, truly, that's amazing. So obviously, you have a job when you finish the service. You'll, Possibly. You'll, you'll open, you'll, you'll open yourself <laughs> a YouTube channel and make all kinds of cash. Uh, you'll be selling underwear and T-shirts and batons and nightlights and all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, but seriously, uh, uh, like what type of – give me an idea of the type of uh, question you might get on an average day. Like are you, are you sharing a story as you – like give me an idea how you do your, your, do your show. I've, I've listened to parts of it. I, I seem to be able to jump sure. in and out. But um, you know, are you, do you start with a, with a sort of a theme for the day or you, you let the audience uh, direct it, your uh, content? It is entirely choose your own adventure. And we've had a, we've experimented with a whole lot of different things, and and there are obviously messages that we look forward to sharing, but they they really come organically. You know, someone brings up a topic, I end up in a story about something afterwards. But we we focus on tint, as uh, as as one of our viewers says, uh, is is probably one of our number one topics and and you know what's the legal what's the, the legality of tint how much over the speed limit can you go uh can i get a ticket for speeding what happens if i get charged or suspended and they just have lots and lots of questions other people are like i having a hard time getting my g2 or my g because of the pandemic what do i do any tips like it is so organic and it's it's really it as a police officer, having the opportunity to help hundreds, if not thousands of people during an hour, and actually hundreds of thousands, now we're, honest to God, 2,500 people in a room watching, and uh, they come in for a minute, some stay for the entire hour. We have people who show up every single day. We have moderators who are volunteering to even help answer questions in the comments because it's just so busy. Everybody wants to, to know what's going on and, and get safer and avoid tickets, so we're helping them do all those things. Have you, you think, have you, have you impacted, um, you know, yourself? First of all, how long have you been doing this, Sean? This is, we started in March of last year when we really, was, I opened wow. the account the year before the, and we didn't use it. We just had it for the investigation. Uh, and then March is when we started and we went, you know, I thought success was hitting 18,000 followers because that's what we had on Twitter. And then we got to 50,000. And a hundred thousand, and then overnight we had what that six million video uh, view, and we ended up with three hundred thousand new followers. We had five hundred. We just it has never stopped, and every time we think we've hit our peak and that we're going to plateau, and that's it, we get another hundred thousand or fifty. Like it, it's just, I, it's unpredictable. It's amazing. We really developed a community, and uh, I appreciate them as much as hopefully they appreciate me. Are you at, are you in a studio in your home? Or are you in a studio in the in the uh, precinct somewhere or in the division? So I, I we we had an idea. We shuffled some 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 uh, furniture. I used a uh, pop up uh, display that we used to use for trade shows because that's how we used to interact. We'd set yeah, up a trade yeah, show. We go to the yeah. boat show, the bike show. Yeah. So I used yeah. that as a background. We had some uh, some uh, fake uh, or, or replica street signs. I stuck those with thumbtacks to the wall, and that was my studio. So it's at work, and uh, I, I used all my own equipment for the first year. And the service is is loving what's going on. They've invested in it. They bought their own equipment, and now my equipment has come home. And that's what I'm using right now for my basement. But uh, you know it. I now can, if, if I, if I, I was on vacation, I took vacation for a week. I stayed in this every morning. I went live so people uh, uh, could still have contact. That's amazing. And, and I can hear in your voice, this is something that really, uh, 
really connects for you and really is uh, – I can hear how excited you are about doing it. Um, any other any other groups, any other divisions, any other – I know you're, you're a traffic cop. And by the way, we're talking to uh, PC Sean Shapiro. Um, what exactly is the name? How, how, do, how, does somebody, how do we tell somebody to listen into you on a, on a, in, a, in the mornings? So the segment's called Ask a Traffic Cop. So if you search the hashtag Ask a Traffic Cop, you'll find us. But we our, our username on uh, Twitter, if you want to follow us there, is Traffic Services. On The, the same on TikTok. Uh, we're Traffic Services Toronto on Instagram Live, where we also broadcast. We have a YouTube channel, which is Traffic Services Toronto Police. And uh, it's all going out at the same time. Of course, our, our largest content pool or, or uh, you know source of information, if you want to go and look at hundreds of hours of, of content, you can go and do that on our uh, uh, on our TikTok page, where we have over 500 videos at this point, uh, which and, and I, I like to throw humor into it. It's got to be entertaining. No one's going to watch boring videos. Uh, but so, so I have fun making it. Uh, it's educational, and we, we've had such great feedback. I mean, folks who we've actually put a survey out recently, uh, and we we are looking for feedback to get an idea of who's watching us, what are they getting out of it, how do we make it better? Because at the end of the day, it's a product. It's all about them. We you know, it's all about the viewers. It's all about helping them get the information they want. It's remarkable. I was going to ask you if any other units do it, like homicide or youth gang or gun violence. Any of these people have anything going like you've got? Nothing like we've got in particular. We are, I think, a standalone in the uh, in in North America at very least. I, I can't speak for the rest of the world. Uh, and we're we're in direct connection with TikTok. We talk to them on a regular basis, and we have all the police uh, users in uh, North America that uh, that are on an email list, and we try and stay current. But we're the largest, and uh, we're the only one doing the live Q and A at very at very least. We're the only one doing the live. Uh, Q and A uh, daily, Monday to Friday. There is Brooks Alberta who does a, a a live as well. They're an RCMP detachment and they've started doing it. Uh, but we, we they're they're onboarding and bringing on more. Uh, police services all the time. I had a call from a chap in uh, Chicago. He's the media officer out there for Chicago police. And he says, listen, we love what you're doing. Want to do exactly what you're doing over there. Can you help us? And I'm happy to help any police service that wants to get this level of engagement and, uh, and, and broaden their, their reach and, and to a different market. Like we're talking to people that we could never talk to before. Uh, we have young people who are on the platform and, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, we, we chat about all sorts of things, uh, but I've also had people reach out to me for other reasons off, you know, you're a friendly guy. It sounds like you, uh, you might be able to help me. And, we, and we've had some interesting chats about some things that were less fun topics, right? Someone who was, uh, you know, feeling about, uh, ending their life and they, they reached out and we ended up getting them some help. I'll tell you something, buddy. And you know, where how my, how I feel about you and I'm uh, so impressed, but I now realize the backstory and, uh, I think uh, clearly whatever uh, led to that uh, horrible event where you ended up in this accident, somehow, some way, there's a, some guidance going on here because sounds to me, my brother, like you've, uh, you've like Stella's found his groove, so to speak, and uh, <laughs> you, you, you're, you're excellent at it and want to continue to uh, to give you uh, give you uh, support as much as we can. We'll have you back on again. I want to. I'm just going to continue maybe from time to time as maybe some serious traffic stuff starts to happen. Uh, we'll get you back on again, but. Um, Time you want. Yeah, buddy. Remarkable job. Great voice. You're, you're so good at it. Uh, I'm talking to my friend Sean Shapiro. He's with Toronto Police Services. Uh, you can reach him or find out from about his uh, program. Hashtag ask a traffic cop and uh, you get out to him. And uh, he's a lot of fun to listen to. I, I do listen in. And uh, number one, he knows what he's talking about. And number two, he makes it fun. So, you know, traffic law may not be the greatest thing to be thinking about, but it may in fact save your life. And he's the guy to listen to. 
When we come back Traf- from break, oh. thank you so much for having us. Um, best traffic cop out there doing what he needs to do from a, from a studio. He'll save more lives than the guys up and down the highways. Anyway, thank you so much for uh, listening to the first half of our show. When we come back, we've uh, got a whole bunch of new stuff. So we're going to take a longer break here and uh, do some uh, work here to pay for the ads and bring in some news. So go get yourself a drink. Go get yourself uh, – go stretch your legs. Do what it is you need to do. We'll be back in a few minutes, and we got another hour of some really cool stuff. So we'll see you in just a few minutes. Yonabud, 640. Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. My name is Yona Bud, and I'm your host on the Road to Recovery. I'm in the studio with Natasha and Sophia, and we appreciate you joining us this evening. So how do you feel about the kids calling for a youth mental health day? We're talking about a youth mental health days in the school. I want to hear if you think it's a good idea. I certainly do. 416-870-6400-888-225-8255. And you need to call soon because these segments are only 10, 12 minutes long. So if you want to get your call in, get your call in soon. Line up in the queue and uh, don't miss the opportunity to share your thoughts and views with us here on the radio. During the first pandemic school year, students at Mary Ward Catholic High School in Scarborough took their mental well-being into their own hands. So the student body wasn't feeling, was feeling the pressure of the pandemic-mandated quadmesters in which students had to take two courses at a time for roughly nine weeks and an unpredictable virus that often forced them to learn from home. So to ease the pressure, the kids lobbied for two school-wide wellness days, a request granted by the school's administration, which kudos to the school. That's all I can say out of the gate. Kudos to the school. Uh, to ease the pressure, the students, uh, as I said, the students lobbied and the administration said that was a good thing and they went along with it. At the time, I was taking the worst set of courses I could possibly take, uh, advanced functions and chemistry recalls Andy. He's a grade 12 student at that school and a member of the Toronto Youth Cabinet. The fact that there's a Toronto Youth Cabinet is also impressive. The wellness days offered him, uh, the wellness days offered him and his classmates a much needed break, he said, where they could be off without falling behind. So actually including it as part of the curriculum. Uh, now, alongside the rest of the Toronto Youth Cabinet, the official youth advisory board to the city is calling on the province to include a mental health or behavioral reasons um, for or behavioral reasons as an excuse for absent uh, for elementary and high school students under the Education Act. Currently, the act singles out sickness or unavoidable causes, but does not ment- mention mental health explicitly. So, the cabinet's also calling on the province to increase mental health support groups at the schools offer mental health training for all the school staff and collect and report data regularly on students' mental health, all in a bid to make, uh, to, to, to make talking about mental health and accessing more care a more part of their mainstream. Uh, Stephen Men- uh, Mensa, he's the executive director of the Toronto Youth Cabinet, said that the calls are driven by the results from a survey that the Cabinet conducted from, conducted from December 2020 to January 2021 of Ontario students in which 43%, okay, 43% said their school does not have a mental health worker in the school. The survey also found 79% of students struggled in some way to gain access to support at the schools. And 43% said it's very important for them to get mental health support from someone uh, who is black, indigenous, or a person of color. The survey gathered answer, the survey gathered answers from 10, from a thousand students, uh, across Canada ages 12 to 19. Uh, James from Pennsylvania is calling about mental health in the classroom. James, how are you this evening? Very well. How are you? Are you actually in Pennsylvania right now? 
I'm in California, Pennsylvania. Did you ever hear of such a town? There's a university here. It's near Pittsburgh. <laughs> yes, I've heard of such a town, and I'm just, uh, I'm just so impressed or, or surprised by the fact that you, that we reach you there. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, talk to me a little bit about mental health in the classroom, which is uh, why you called, James. Well, I agree with it. I, I'm, a, I, a license, I'm a licensed practical nurse That's uh, in America. That's an assistant to the registered nurse. And I would imagine that you would need that. And uh, I, I think you're as sick as your secrets. And when you're hiding things and sneaking around and not talking, talking about them, they'll all build up and there will be a big explosion. You know what I mean? It will all come out in a, instead of talking it over. And people, you know, years ago, people used to sit down at dinner time and talk to their family about their problems, but people don't do that no more. So nobody really talks; they just type in computers. But um, so do, do you see a lot? Do you, what do you do in the hospital? What what department or what area are you in in the hospital? I was a geriatric nurse, a medicine nurse for geriatric people, and tube feedings and dressings in a nursing home. You work under the direction of a registered nurse, a licensed practical nurse, an LPN they call them. But in, in Pittsburgh here, about last week, they was getting out of school, and some some child, went, two people were around a school van, and they shot the little boy to death right through the side of the school bus. Oh, my. Oh, my. Isn't that terrible, awful? Terrible <laughs> story. Well, listen, buddy, I, I appreciate the call, and uh, I, I really appreciate the call, and I, I hope that uh, you stay safe out there and uh, Keep listening and uh, tell all your friends. I appreciate you uh, chiming in. That's uh, my friend James from Pennsylvania. I'm so happy that he was able to call. Um, as of this year, 1,400 mental health professionals are working across publicly funded schools, serving a population of over 2 million kids. Uh, that's according to the Ministry of Education's data. Uh, the, that ratio that need, that's the ratio that needs to improve. It's not a big enough number. Uh, some students responded to the survey saying uh, that they would like more time to cope and understand what they're experiencing. Others say that the education system has struggled to show empathy for students who are burnt out. That no one seems to be spending a lot of time worrying about the kids, and I would certainly agree with that finding. Uh, both the Toronto District School Board and the Toronto Catholic District School Board said they've conducted surveys of the student body and their families to pinpoint issues. In the TTSB's latest survey in November 2021, 42% of elementary students and 68%, 68% of high school, said, high school students said that they felt stressed, and that's an increase from the 2017 survey by a significant number. And um, so Manasseh goes on to say, the kid goes on to say, the, the person who adds up that, that youth group, <clears throat> says that the calls put forward by the youth cabinet could help erode stigma and create an environment where students who are struggling can be comfortable seeking help. For students who do, cho do choose to take those days, we want to make sure that they're not required to provide the school with a doctor's note, he added. Financial troubles or not having the luxury to be able to afford a note should not be a barrier. These days you want your doctor to write you a note and keep you from school. You need to pay him for such a service. I, I, it's ridiculous anyway. After two years of pandemic schooling, the kids all and their classmates all feel exhausted. They need to, some relief uh, in terms of extracurricular activities that used to give them uh, some relief. But now that they're finding that they've lost touch with friends and classmates, especially during the learning from home stage, the, the kids go on to add teachers and other school staff often don't know if a student is struggling especially if a student is learning online. You don't know what's happening at the home, right? Unless the student reaches out, if they notice their academic performance is slipping, um, no one really knows. Except for academics, I don't think there's much room for many methods 
for a teacher to know that a student is struggling. For students who can hide it better, their mental health issues will never show. I want to hear from you, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. First of all, I'm impressed by a couple of things. I'm impressed by the fact that kids are standing up for kids. Anytime anytime young people are empowered to stand up for themselves and to um, make their point heard, it gives them a voice when people feel like they're victimized. It's very important to have a voice. And, uh, And kids... Today, I would say feel victimized. That you know, I, I deal with a lot of a lot of youth in my in my private practice, and uh, they're all saying the same thing. You know, they're, they're, everybody's worried about financial, uh, you know, financial uh, supports and getting people back to work and getting restaurants open and gyms open. He says, but no one's really talking to the kids. Nobody, certainly the kids that he knows, uh, no one's really talking about the, to the kids about what's happening with them. The parents are the ones that are seeking mental health support for their kids. Now we're starting to see the kids are supporting, looking for support for themselves. Uh, the youth cabinets met with uh, Minister Stephen Lecce to discuss their their, their concerns. Uh, in a statement, a, a spokesperson for Lecce said his ministry will meet with parents and students in early February to identify emerging issues in student mental health. It's that's great. It, it's it's great that he's willing to listen. Lecce is prepared to listen. What's he going to do with that? Right? What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with the information? What are we going to do when we realize that we are mentally and emotionally and psychologically crippling our children? It's, it's just the bottom line. We're not listening to them, and, we're in, and they're having bad days. And in, fair, in fairness to the families, they're overwhelmed too, right? Everyone's trying to get by. Everyone's trying to get through all this nonsense, trying to figure out a way to, uh, to make this uh, a, better, a better situation, trying to find some light at the end of this very, what appears to be for many, a very dark tunnel. So kids standing up for themselves, looking for a youth, um, you know, a day in school. There should be a day in school um, probably on a regular basis where kids can take a, a, a Friday mental health day off. And certainly for young people and their families who are suffering with some form of mental health illness and such can't really attend school, go to school, focus. Like if you're not, if you're in a, if you're in an, so for example, if a kid has some form of attention deficit, right? Very difficult for a kid with a attention deficit disorder or some, you know, minor form of attention deficit. If, if they're, if they, they can't concentrate in a virtual environment. So it raises levels of anxiety, and then the anxiety leads to the fear of, of failure, and then the fear of failure leads to them feeling, you know, somewhat suicidal sometimes, or often like they they're never going to make it. They, they, what's what? Why bother going to school? There's no future for them. There's not going to be any jobs. There's not going to be any opportunity. I know my son is a chef in the in the food service industry and is attending uh, George Brown College, and at George, in, in, you know, many of his classes have been canceled. Because young people are not looking to the restaurant hospitality industry as a, as a means to make a living and create a future for themselves. That's a real problem. It's a real problem when complete industries at this educational level are going sideways. So thinking about kids and make, giving children a chance, young people a chance to, to, to take the time that they need, not to be abused, of course, but to take the time that they need if they're having a difficult day. You know, everyone's having difficult days today, uh, adults and kids alike. And, you know, trying to attend school when you're feeling anxious or depressed, can't get out of bed and, you know, just showing up because your, your mother or father drags you out of bed to sit in front of a, uh, uh, in front of a screen and try to learn. 
can be more devastating than just not learning that day at all. So I think it's a great opportunity. I think it's something we really need to pay attention to. I think these kids, uh, their voices need to be heard louder and louder, and we need to scream from the rooftops that our kids are not doing well, and we need to come up with a way to help them and help them feel better. So that's where we're at with that. Really appreciate that uh, article that was written uh, um, by uh, Nadine Youssef, who is a writer for the Toronto Star. She writes on mental health. She never wants to come on my show for some whatever reason, but um, she's an excellent writer and does uh, superb work. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, more COVID, unfortunately. We're going to deal with uh, patients that are waiting uh, for uh, surgeries and stuff that have been postponed and just talking about the whole sort of exhaustion uh, level that we're all feeling. We're After two years, you know, many people are just just had enough, you know. It's not quite mental health, but it's, you know, at that point, right, where it's just too much. We'll be right back here. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. This is Yona Bud here on 640 Toronto Global News Radio. Thank you for joining us this evening. Want to jump in here at any point? 416-870-6400-888-225-8255. Had a buddy call in from Pennsylvania. Want to get some of my brothers and sisters right here in the GTA to give me a shout out. Yo, Yona, what's up? That's what I'm looking for. Anyway, listen, I feel forgotten according to one of these. Uh, I'm going to read you an article here. Uh, according to patients in Ontario, wait for surgeries postponed due to covid uh, restrictions. Really serious situation, right? This is a really situa- serious situation. People are waiting to have um, surgeries and treatments of, of various forms, and they're not able to get them because of various uh, COVID restrictions and lockdowns and restrictions in hospitals and, uh, you know, whatever, trying to gain capacity to deal with those who are sick from the virus. Uh, the waiting has become excruciating for Shelley Brownlee and her partner, Jonathan Clow. Brownlee has been diagnosed, she was diagnosed with a form of cancer in her abdomen. She's been waiting for months to undergo surgery at a hospital in Toronto. Her doctor said he had hoped to proceed within the next month, but the Ontario government's pause on non-urgent surgeries and procedures aiming aim amid soaring COVID cases means she's likely going to hang on a bit longer. I don't know how much more life-threatening it gets than having cancer in your gut and you need to get it cut out. It's excruciating waiting for this, not having an, an endpoint so we know for sure that she'll be able to get the surgery, he go, her um, partner goes on to say. And knowing that as time goes on, the options available to the surgeon when he does do the surgery become lessened, according to her uh, her partner, uh, Mr. Jonathan Clow, who he detailed his Brown situation as she wasn't up for an interview. He goes on to say that compounding their their frustration is the fact that the province is allowing businesses shuttered, er, shuttered early this month to reopen with capacity limits and so on. But it's infuriating because the implication to me is that businesses and the economy is more important, frankly, than people's lives, according to Mr. Clow. Brownlee started experiencing abdom- abdominal pain last January, last January, so a year now, right? and decided to get checked out. After several tests, the doctor told her she didn't have cancer but needed to have an ovarian cyst removed. When she went in for the procedure last June, um, the medical team realized that there was indeed cancer and it had spread throughout her abdomen. Okay, so you got me? From January till June, went from maybe not cancer to spreading into her abdomen. 
The cancer can't be treated by can that cancer can't be treated by chemotherapy and requires surgery to remove everything in her abdomen that she doesn't need. It probably involves a full hysterectomy, which can involve parts of her large bowel. And unfortunately, it's growing on her small bowel. There's not so much that there's not only so much they can remove. The longer we wait, the more the opportunity is for them to save the small bowel. And it goes on. I know this is a little gross, and I apologize um, if it's if it's if it's grossing you out. But we need to talk about people that are you know it, it's it's really a problem. It runs the gamut across the health system. It's exacerbated, right? A m- most recent wave of Omicron and the directive to the healthcare system is currently under. Um, another resident, uh, Akbar Jazani, he injured his knee in September playing soccer. He was scheduled to have knee surgery on January 17th, but it's been postponed indefinitely with no surgery date. He's, he said the mental fatigue of waiting for this is it's just, you know, growing more and more every day. Last week, a press conference, um, Ontario's reopening plan, the healthcare, a uh, health minister, excuse me, Christian, Christine Elliott, uh, the def- government made a difficult decision earlier this month to pause non-urgent surgeries. Again, I don't know what's more urgent. The woman had uh, had some growth. The growth was deemed to be non-malignant at the time. Now it's spreading. Like, I don't know how much more urgent it needs to be. I feel uh, people that do have life-threatening condition, of course, they will receive the care that they need. We know many people are upset and frustrated at the surgeries. Elliot goes on to say, um, this, Elliot goes on, the spokesperson for her said, the province announced $18 million investment in j- July for centralized surgical waitlist management. Um, and this, the story just goes on and on with people that have been waiting for um, their surgeries, some of whom are going to slip through the cracks. Many, um, many may not make it. Many may find themselves uh, beyond the time where the help would be of value uh, because there are you know, certain timelines as it relates to those types of surgeries. Um, but beyond that, beyond just the surgical wait list, right, the, the, the wait list of, of trying to get in for your, for your scheduled surgeries, I was supposed to have back surgery um, several years ago, kept putting it off uh, as a result of the pandemic and <clears throat> finally got involved, got in front of the, the, the surgeon and realized that it was a much bigger deal than I was led to believe out of the gate. So I put it off and I'm working out and training and losing weight and doing what I can to, to try to, you know, to, to put it off maybe indefinitely, maybe forever. <clears throat> but that's, you know, a choice I get to make because I'm in that position. Many people aren't in that position. But you know what? A lot of us, a lot of us, myself included, We've just endured two long years of this stuff. And this exhaustion for many people can be very, very dangerous. You know, the wave didn't really hit us here until March, right? But after Ontario's premier told people to go away on spring break and have fun, in those early days of the lockdown, the earth became so much stiller. And, uh, you know, we, we just, everything was quiet. That quiet didn't last for long. So after two years of various levels of incompetence from very federal and provincial and Municipal governments, the lonely heartbreak of long-term care, the crisis in, in hospitals, cutting off human contact, you know, all of this stuff, you're probably just tired of it. Some people are howling, I'm done with COVID, I'm through. Let me speak to COVID's manager as if loudly shouting at a virus through your mask would make it all go away, right? But mostly they, 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 mostly they hope that they don't have to go to a hospital anytime soon or have to wait for surgery. Ask someone who works at a hospital or long-term care if they're done with COVID. They'll tell you they were done a year ago. It's just too much. It's just too much. People are leaving leaving their jobs in healthcare. People are lose, leaving their jobs um, in in various industries because they've just had enough. They're moving out of the city and trying to move to more peaceful country where they can you know live for less. 
People have just had enough. Along with the sheer endurance is the test of this wave. The unvaccinated are at higher risk than ever. And, you know, which means in a, in a whole bunch of them are now in Ottawa saying they don't believe in all of these mandates and so on. Like, it's, it's the vaccinated people are, are looking out for the interests of the unvaccinated people is the way this thing works out right now. 416-870-6400, if you want to jump in the middle of this conversation, I'd love to hear from you. The hospitals are still jammed and thousands of surgeries per week are still being uh, uh, postponed. We're still far above the wave three record in the hospitals. ICU is rising, but slower. Deaths may soon exceed the highest of heights of previous waves, despite all of the vaccines. We're all still waiting for to see what's happening in the schools. Like, it's just becoming too much. Exhaustion could be dangerous, by the way, the, the experts say. It's easy to overlook how much solidarity has been in Canada, though it varies by province. Vaccination is the easiest proxy since the data supporting vaccine effectiveness is relatively unambiguous, right? 82% of Canadians over the age of five have at least two doses. Um, the push has gone. It's been strong. You know, we're, we're, we're doing this. Like we're, most of us are doing what we need to do to get through this. But it's enough. We've been reduced to just waiting to see what the next lockdowns are. And we've been holding back on making decisions on purchasing things or going to certain things and Families are, are making decisions about whether their, their kids are going to university next year or not, and the money that they need to put together. I mean, many families don't have the financial means they had two years ago, which means some of these kids may not get the, sec- the post-secondary education that they're looking for. Two long years, man. The vaccinated majority are being asked to take the responsibility for the unvaccinated. It's really becoming an issue for us, Right. And the hardest-edged unvaccinated are being supported by the official opposition. And the cracks are more visible. So now we're going to see a two-tier society, those vaccinated and those unvaccinated. And the frustration and the anger and the resentment and just a pure burnout is just too much. Most people don't know how to manage it. Most people don't know how to deal with it. Therapy is one way. Having somebody to talk to is another. Working out, physical fitness is absolutely a way to get past this burnout feeling. Eating well, sleeping well, distractions. Don't spend time watching the news. You know what it's going to say. Everybody's saying, well, how many people died today? How many? I don't even ask anymore. I don't even want to hear anymore. I don't, I don't, not that I don't care. It's just, it's enough already. It's overload. Not much we can do about it. Hopefully people will survive this particular wave. And those that are vaccinated have a much better chance of doing so. But we're all burnt out. We've all had enough. And I think it's time that we stand up and say, okay, enough is enough. Let's get back to normal. Many countries have people that um, are sick. They stay home for three, two, three, four days like they used to in the days when all you had was a flu or a cold. And after three or four days when the fever subsided and they felt better, they go back to work. Nothing's locked down. Businesses are normal. We are the only province, I believe, that has been locked down as much and as often as in, than any other place in the world. I could be wrong. If I am, let me know. But I believe that's where we're at. Anyway, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the toll of this. If we think you're frustrated yourself, imagine being a retail worker or someone working in a restaurant these days in in the hospitality industry. Well, for young people, it's not so good, and it's really having a negative effect on them. When we come back, we're going to talk about that. Yona Bud, 640, Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. 
And welcome back to the show. This is Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery. Thank you for joining us this evening. It's now 1034. It's very cold out there. It feels like minus 24. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your seniors, your animals? Not the night that they should be out wandering around if you don't know where they are. So if you need to find them, call 911 and uh, get some help. And if you need to find me anytime through the week or um, you want to chat for some reason or if I can help you in some way, you can always reach me at 877 877- 777-5808-877-777-5808. Love to hear from you. Or you can send me an email here to the show, road to recovery at 640toronto.com. Love to hear from you. So the pandemic rage is taking a toll on Canadians' young retail workers. Uh, the 26 years, the 26-year-old cashier finds herself themselves thrust front and center in the daily bitterness that's imperiling the health of livelihoods of many young and vulnerable Canadians. Young workers have already taken it on the chin over the course of this pandemic, losing more jobs, being paid less, taking more precarious work than the rest of us. Kids somehow are getting shoved around again, right? Just doing a horrible job with our children. And now the growing activism among cavalier shoppers, the fraying of patients, the ever-changing COVID-19 protocols, and the unreliable supply of things like produce on store shelves mean that the minimum wage cashiers, buggy pushers, servers, clerks, and greeters who are at the backbone of a smooth functioning in those same stores are once again in the line of fire. Adam, who doesn't want to use his last name because for job security reasons, has begun refusing to serve customers who won't wear a mask. They'll offer up a free mask first, but if the customer resists, Adam simply won't serve them. That's when the harassment begins. Perhaps it's just an eye-rolling or some mild comment, somebody might say. But on occasion, it's actually mocking or accusations, yelling, shoving, pushing groceries, throwing groceries at people, complaints to the manager, even filing formal grievances with the head office over a particularly young worker. Like, seriously? It's not Adam or Billy or Jane or Tommy or Sandra's or Ahmed's problem It's not their job to make sure the shelves are full. If you want to make sure the shelves are full, don't support the people that are in Ottawa in their trucks. Support those that are out there working and bringing you groceries. But don't take it out on the retail worker. Right? It's just, I don't, I want, you know, Adam doesn't want any conflict in his life. He just wants a job, right? I don't want to be, I don't want to demonize unvaccinated people or folks who don't wear masks. I don't know where they're coming from and it's not for me to ask. The customers, however, are quick to judge the likes of someone like an Adam. I feel a little more afraid. I feel a little more resolute in my refusal of unsafe work, Adam said in an interview. He buys K95 masks and tries to arrange for frequent testing so as not to bring COVID-19 home. It's costly and it's certainly not foolproof. Uh, it's that, by the way, uh, you know, a rapid test used to cost $10 a test, let's say. They're now $22 a test in less than weeks. It's the escalation of tension that is so uh, punishing for young workers. They're, they're just, they're, you know, many of these kids get yelled and screamed at at home and get treated like dirt at school. The last thing they need to do is get treated like that on the job. Alarmed at the population or polarization, excuse me, over vaccination that has led to, over the vaccination has led to confrontations on the election trail and protests outside hospitals and so on. Uh, the parliaments have already passed legislation making it an offense to intimidate a healthcare worker or patient with offenders facing up to 10 years in jail. Well, what about service sector workers? They're often paid minimum wage, less likely to have a union in their workplace to speak for them, often younger than, you know, their university age or younger, find themselves tasked with enforcing rules around masking, hand sanitizing, distancing, capacity 
You know, there's people out there that are still touching food and putting it back. Like, seriously. If you pick up the orange, put it in your basket. Don't squeeze it till you find one you like. It's not the old days. This is the day where everyone's spreading something to somebody. Who are these people? According to some of the polling done by uh, Abacus Data in early January, about 14% of adults were not vaccinated. Overall, they skew younger than 45. They're spread across the country. They're less likely to be worried about COVID-19, and they are more likely to have a little trust in government, science, or institutions. The workers on the other side of the equation of that anger are at the nexus of that cultural war. So someone in a restaurant, someone in a store, someone in, you know, at the mall, right? These young people, workers, almost a third of these workers are aged 15 to 24. They work in retail. And that's up a full three percentage points before the pandemic. So less adults working, less post-24 aged people working. More, about 16% work in accommodations and food services, which is down significantly from 20% a year ago. And uh, despite the churn, the pay is just as low in retail as it is in fast food. So the average wage in retail for wholesale, for, and wholesale for a young person is fifteen seventy one and fifteen forty two in accommodation and food services. So fifteen and a half, almost fifteen and a half dollars. So for you know fifteen sixteen year old, it's not a bad living. But to take a bunch of abuse for it, I don't know, man. Wouldn't want my kid to do it, right? It just it doesn't make sense to me. Clearly, any employer or policymaker aiming to respect young workers, could see some kind of quick fix, arming them with the best of masks, lost lots of uh, paid sick days, all the support they need to turn rule breakers away. Store, store managers and store owners are siding with the customers, in many cases, over their young workers. That doesn't make sense. It's not healthy. We're teaching kids the wrong things. That the lower you are on the totem pole, the more likely you are to get to get pushed around and stepped on. And for some reason, that seems to be okay. But young workers may have some power to demand more than that. They could quit and try to find something better. And I'll tell you, a lot of people are, are just a lot of stores and restaurants can't open because they can't find sufficient work. I have a friend of mine who runs a restaurant in Toronto, and fortunately, he's got a couple of uh, a couple of kids and a wife that together, the four of them can operate the restaurant well enough to keep it operating um, because they can't find help. The, the, the staff that they had for years and years and years have either found other jobs elsewhere, found different industries to work in, have retired, or gone back to the country they came from for a better life. Can you imagine leaving Canada to go back somewhere else for a better life because we're so restrictive and we're so abusive as a country and as a, as a community, as a society in this in Canada, in terms of how we're treating one another and how the, the restrictions are relates to work closures and so on. Many people are going back to countries that have less to offer but seem to feel safer and better for them to go. Jobs have bounced back quickly, though, for young people. After every wave of the pandemic, Bernard, uh, the experts point out, until Omicron hit in January, employers were quite desperate for labor. They would really take anybody you know, to, 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 to fill the position. So far, though, Canada hasn't experienced the high quit rate yet or the surge in wages that have seen in the United States. We're going to see. We're going to see that $15 rate, uh, rate go up to 16 17 18 or, or employers aren't going to find people to work, young or old. So let's pay attention to what we're doing here. And when you walk into a store, thank the person who's in there for being there to serve you. 
They're doing you a favor. They're getting paid, sure, but they're putting themselves at risk and they don't deserve to be berated or made to feel badly. That's my story. That's how I feel about young people who work in retail and restaurants and anyone who works in the service industry. Treat them with respect like you would your own mother or father, hopefully. Anyway, when we come back from break, we're going to uh, finish, the story, finish the show today. Was this something a little bit positive, something a little upbeat? We're going to teach you a little bit about positive thinking, what it is, what it's not, and how to do it, and give you some of the benefits of positive thinking. So when we go home tonight, when you get off the, off the air with me here, you're going to think about some of the things we talked about, and you're going to come over with some positive thoughts, and I'm going to teach you how to do that in just a minute. You want to bud? 640 Toronto. Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, are you, uh, welcome back. This is Yona Bud. This is the last segment of our show. We're on 640 Toronto. Thank you for joining us. Talking about positive thinking, it's a short segment. Want to hear from you right away. That's why I'm talking so quickly. 416 870 6400 or 888-225-8255. Are you a positive thinker? Do you find the light at the end of the tunnel? Is the glass half full or half empty? Well, some physical benefits of being a positive thinker is that you'll have a longer life, lower chance of having a heart attack, better physical health, greater resistance to illness, such as the common cold, better pain tolerance, and the mental benefits are more creativity, better problem solving, clearer thinking, better mood, better coping skills, and less depression. When people in, a, in one survey were exposed to the flu and comma gold, those with a positive outlook were less likely to get sick and reported fewer symptoms. You can think yourself well, my friends. And in a study of people over 50, those who had more positive thoughts about aging lived much longer. They also had less stress-related inflammation which shows one positive link between their thoughts and health. Physical inflammation was reduced with more positive thinking. It's a reality. It's a fact. Science proves it. There's research too, right? That if, if you're naturally more pessimistic, meaning that you tend to see the worst, not no worries, it may help to see the positive thinking as a skill that you can learn and benefit from. Uh, other studies have shown positive thinking helps people manage illnesses and eases all kinds of mental, mental and physical illnesses. First, you have to nix the negative, right? You've got to get, you got to deal with the negative. So the first thing you have to think about is a bad filter. If you have a bad filter, you overlook the good things about a situation and get wrapped up in the negatives. Not a good way to go, right? You leave feeling annoyed and frustrated, forgetting about the good mood that you had or the good time. So you have a really good time. You have a great time at the restaurant, and all you think about was that the dessert came late. Who cares? You had a great meal, great friends, nice atmosphere, reasonably good service. You enjoyed the flavors. But you're going to end up ruining the evening for yourself and probably others because you're pissed off about the dessert coming late. Take blame is another thing we do. Do you tend to take blame for something bad or disappointing? It's, it's not the way you don't. You can't blame yourself for everything and certainly not for others. You're always one to predict disaster, right? You're that kind of person. That always, you know, yeah, but I won't go because just in case I go, this might happen. Well, yeah, you might get hit by a car. You've heard people tell you that when you cross the street. Black and white thinking. Do you see things as either good or bad? No middle ground? Well, I'll tell you what. Here's how you practice positive thinking. Because your negative thoughts won't go away overnight. You have to practice. You need to train yourself to have a more positive outlook. Because if, you're, if you don't, you're missing all the best possibilities of the day. It's all about mindfulness, my friends. I love you guys. I want to give you the best advice possible. Mindfulness. Living in the moment. Recognizing the beauty and the, and, the, and the magnificence of the moment, right here, right now. 
what is it, 1049 or 1048 here on January, January the, the 29th. We're together. We're ho- hopefully all safe. We're, 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 we, have, we know I have a job, and hopefully most of you have a job. Life's pretty good. How do you practice positive thinking like this? Start with smiling more, okay? Why don't you smile more? Because in a study, people who smiled more, even if they sm- fake smiled, they were definitely less stressful. Because you feel more positive and you feel better with a smile on your face. In the old days when we used to do uh, training of salespeople uh, back in the day, part of my coaching practice, you know, we'd put a mirror in front of everybody in front of their desk and in front of behind the phone. And we would tell them, don't phone any customers unless you're smiling. Because if you're not smiling, eh, you're not going to come across as the guy they want to hear from. Second thing is reframe your situation. When something bad happens that's out of your control, instead of getting all upset and getting all angry, try to appreciate the good parts. Okay, so that wasn't so great, so that wasn't so great, but this is pretty good. So, for example, you get stuck in a traffic jam. Okay, in these days, if you've got a phone in your car, get stuck in a traffic jam, either turn on some cool music and enjoy yourself and relax, or call people you haven't talked to in a while. Call your mom, call your relatives, call your brother, call your aunt, call your friends from wherever in a different time zone. You know, take, take advantage of this quiet time in your car. Keep a gratitude journal. If anybody's ever told you about journaling your life and journaling things in your life, um, they're giving you good advice. Keep a gratitude journal. Sounds a little cheesy, I know. But when you sit down each day to read to, or week to write down the things you're th- thankful for, right, it forces you to pay attention to the good in your life. A study actually found that people who kept gratitude journals felt more thankful, positive, and optimistic about the future. They actually slept better. I believe you should have a journal beside your bed. I believe you should have a journal handy everywhere. Because if you have thoughts, especially when you're going to sleep or in the middle of the night, get up, write them down, and go back to bed. What we're talking about here is a positive way to think. And one of the positive ways you think better, one of the ways you get a more positive attitude, is being grateful for what you have. Picture your best possible future is another another tool that we're talking about. Think in detail about the bright vision of your future, your career, relationships, health, hobbies, whatever. Write them all down. Imagine your life going well. Think it positive. Think positively and positive will come. Think negatively and negative will come. I guarantee it. It's not BS. It actually works. Focus on your strengths is another tool here. Each day of the week, think about one of your own personal strengths. Write down how much how you plan to use that strength in new ways that day. Then act on it. Yeah, I know. Sounds like I can hear you. I can see you guys looking at me going, yeah, that's a lot of work and a lot of homework and I don't want to write that stuff down. I'm telling you, this is a training program. You need to train yourself to think positively. Most people aren't wired that way. It takes work. Focus on your strengths like kindness, organization, discipline, creativity. Write down how you plan to use it in a good way and then act on it, as I said. People in the study who did that boasted that their happiness and lowered their symptoms of depression just by keeping track of things that they were grateful for. My dear friends, the ability to think positively is within your reach. The opportunity to see sunshine in a dark, cloudy day is within your reach. I do it all the time. I deal with my patients with it all the time. You're talking to a person here. I'm listening. You're listening to someone on the air right now who has anxiety disorder, ADD, and OCD, obsession, obsession uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, right? I, I, you know, I have stuff going on, and it's real easy for me to find myself going down a rabbit hole. Real easy. I can find the negative in a situation better than anybody you know if I let myself. A, it makes me a horrible human being. B, it makes me a terrible therapist. And C, it makes me a, you know, it, it makes me not feel good. 
If I'm in a funk, I got to get out of it. And if I'm in a funk, it's because I'm missing something. I'm not sleeping properly. I'm not eating properly. I didn't work out that day or have some kind of physical, you know, exercise or release, whether it's just a walk or stretching or a little yoga, something. Doesn't mean you got to be in a gym. You can do it in your living room, bedroom, whatever you've got available to you. Thinking positively is a way to last longer. It gives you more longevity. It's, the, it's like taking care of your car. You want it to last forever and ever because you really love it and it costs lots of money. Treat yourself as well as you treat your brand new car. Make sure you're oiling it properly, meaning you're having the right food. Make sure you get out to exercise or drive the car so it doesn't get all gunged up in the engine. Well, that means you got to take it out and, and stretch it out and, get, and, and give it some, some room to breathe. Most importantly, you need to stand back and look at that brand new car and love it for what it is. Look at yourself the same way. Stand up and let the world know that I am Yonabud. I am a university graduate. I'm excellent at my job, and nothing that comes in my way is too big or too difficult. Stare at yourself in the mirror and say that. Tell yourself how good you are. Tell yourself how important you are to the world and how important the world is to you. Be happy that you're able to get up and get out in the morning and do what you need to do. I, I, I did a, a segment weeks ago and it talked about my niece who's, who was, uh, as a result of an accident, is paralyzed from the neck down. And listening to people complain about the snow and the weather and the shoveling and you got to put your boots on in cold weather, i got to wear my coat. At least you can. At least you can stand up in the morning and step on the ground and walk to the bathroom or use both arms, hopefully, to get dressed. Or can see the color of your clothes to know if, in fact, they're the right colors and they go together. Not everybody has that benefit. Not everyone gets to get up in the morning and put their feet on the ground. Not everyone gets up in the morning and can chew by themselves. Not everybody gets up in the morning and has the ability to go to work. Not everybody in the morning gets up and can do things by themselves and doesn't need someone to take care of them. So if you're not in that position and you are able to get up and take care of yourself and use the bathroom and clean yourself and brush your teeth and make your food and get to the bus stop and get to work and all that stuff, good on you. And you should be absolutely grateful for it because not everyone gets to do that. It's not just a given. People complained to me weeks ago. I was hearing people on the radio and one of the one of my colleagues was hosting a show I think in the afternoon and people were calling in and they were complaining about traffic and this and that you know and and the host said something you know I wanted him to say it but he didn't say it what I wanted him to say is yeah but hey how much worse would it be if you didn't have a job to drive to you're complaining about traffic and the cost of gasoline I get it but thank god you have a place to go a place to drive to a business that's open a business that still exists be grateful my friends be grateful for what we have. Be grateful for each other. Make sure that the people you're with know that you're grateful for them. And be grateful for yourself and for your own accomplishments and the things that make you who you are and give you the life that you have. And I love you. You're the best audience ever, and I really appreciate you being here with us tonight. I want you to hug one another. I want you to give each other a kiss if you can, if you're in that position, if you're that close. But most importantly, I want you to smile and spread some nice. Spread nice everywhere you go, and your life will change. And the lives around you, the people that you impact, will change. Thank you for being here with me this evening. I hope, look forward to seeing you next week. Make it the best week ever, dressed warm. And uh, we'll see you on the flip side. Yonabud, 640, Toronto.